0: <laughs> Hermani, it's a, a huge thrill to have you here. Thank
1: you, it's very nice to be
0: um, here. I, I've always joked that, that, that ever since I first discovered Hermani's books they, I, I fantasised about having her as the ideal tutor, she's like the perfect Oxford tutor, as indeed she has been until very recently. And it was a lovely coincidence yesterday to discover that Maggie O'Farrell came to you for an interview and in you offered her a place as she walked in but at, at not York. in Oxford? No, in at York.
1: York. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, i no sooner set eyes on her, I thought. And then, of course, I
0: teased her and said, But you went elsewhere, yeah. did you? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, we won't embarrass Maggie. Um, today, I'm, out of your wealth of books, we're going to focus on just two the Edith Wharton and the Penelope Fitzgerald biographies. Partly because they, they are such fascinating contrasts, the, these two women, each of whom was an enormous success eventually. Um, but they they both came to writing from rather different angles. Should we start with Wharton? I mean, let's, your start, hands. let's start yeah. with Wharton. Yeah. And let me let me let me play devil's advocate and say, oh, most people only know Edith Wharton because of Henry James.
1: Yes, it's partly true. I mean, just to go back to the the, the preamble, um, I'm very interested in people who get off to a late start. Um, and it is a common uh, thing for women writers uh, because other things get in the way. Uh, and uh, if you think of George Eliot or uh, Willa Cather, or indeed Virginia Woolf, um, as well as Edith Wharton um, uh, and Penelope Fitzgerald, um, they... It takes a little while, or in some cases quite a long while, uh, for them to, to to get going, and and I and particularly with Fitzgerald, I think that underground stream that ran along for a long time before she really got going is something that I'd love mm. to to come back to. So yes, there's a there's a big difference between <coughs> writing a biography of an enormously. Uh, established and well-known figure such as Wolfe or such as Wharton and writing a biography for the first time of someone who hasn't had a biography written about them. And that's also something uh, we could come back to. But I think think it is partly true um, that Edith Wharton has been at times overshadowed uh, by Henry James. It's ironic because um, when they got to know each other, he was struggling Uh, and didn't have any money and his books weren't being hugely read. Um, And she had had an enormous success in 1905 with the House of Mirth um, and was extremely wealthy. Uh, And there is a... um, a famous story where she tells him that she's bought her new, very grand car, automobile, I should say. Uh, for the next the,
0: terrifying holiday in France. For their next
1: terrifying <laughs> holiday in France, where they've driven around by a chauffeur very quickly through French empty French roads. Um, and uh, she said, I bought this car with the proceeds of my last novel. Uh, and Henry James says reflectively, well, with the proceeds of my last novel, I bought a wheelbarrow with which the the luggage of my guest is wheeled up from the station into in his Rye. house in Rye. And with proceeds of my next novel, I shall have the wheelbarrow painted. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a certain edge to this story, I feel. Mm. And so there is a kind of... And, and she very much wanted his approval, which he didn't often give to his friends' novels. Mm-hmm. He found her indeed very... Exigeant and, and and over busy and overbearing, and she that he and his friends used to call her the angel of devastation. <laughs> the angel of devastation is arriving again on these shores. I am a British pauper cowering under the mm. carpet, you say. But then when the war came and we could talk more about that, she became transformed in his imagination to the great generalissima, and he, mm. and all those qualities of overactivity, bossiness. Tremendous energy uh, multitasking which he had found rather overwhelming he in his last years he came greatly to admire.
0: well what emerges in the biography as well is a sense that that had she not become a novelist, we would still have heard of her because through him she, if not or, through him then just through history because she she clearly was oh, not, sure. she was one of did. those unstoppable mm. forces
1: mm. well um, historically she did she did all the things she wasn't supposed to do. You know, she was the product, she was the daughter of Well, can we, a, we talk
0: about the mother? The, the,
1: certainly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, she, she's the product of a, of a costive, um, somewhat straight-laced, uh, to her mind, useless gilded age family that didn't do any work worth doing and, and, and lived off the fat of the land and had quite a lot of money, although the father was, was not very good at money and that's why they all went to Europe, because uh, it was cheaper um, to live there. And she was supposed to be a Gilded Age hostess and wife, uh, and just like her mother, mm. um, and uh, she did the opposite. She went to uh, live in, mainly in France, but also in England and, and Italy, and became a writer, became a great professional writer. Mm. Um, and the, the object of her antagonism all through her writing life uh, is indeed her mother, the very straight-laced, chilly Lucretia Jones. I mean, I don't know if I can give two small examples. Please do, of the... no, please do. So, so she tells two key stories about her mother. One is when she started writing at a very young age. My first attempt at the age of 11 was a novel, which began, oh, how do you do, Mrs. Brown, said Mrs. Tompkins. If only I had known you were going to call, I should have tidied up the drawing room. Timorously, I submitted this to my mother and never, never shall I forget the sudden drop in my creative frenzy when she returned it with the icy comment, drawing rooms are always tidy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Edith Wharton's mother. And then uh, uh, some years later, when she's about to get married, she's a 23 year old virgin. The facts of life have never been discussed. Sexual hypocrisy is the norm. Um, if somebody who's having an affair goes past in the street, her mother says, look out of the other window of the carriage. Mm. Um, and so she's about to get married to this apparently very good match, sort of jolly Bostonian who turns out to be a schizophrenic alcoholic, but she didn't know that yet. Um, her mother she, didn't tell her. <laughs> no, quite. And is this is too loud. No, um, and, uh, and so she goes to ask her mother uh, the facts of life. Um, A few days before my marriage, I was seized with such a dread of the whole dark mystery that I summoned up courage to appeal to my mother and begged her with a heart beating to suffocation to tell me what being married was like. Her handsome face at once took on the look of icy disapproval, which I most dreaded. I never heard such a ridiculous question, she said impatiently, and I felt at once how vulgar she thought me. But in the extremity of my need, I persisted. I'm afraid, Mama. I want to know what's going to happen to me the coldness of her expression deepened to disgust. She was silent for a dreadful moment and then she said with an effort, you've seen enough pictures and statues in your life. Haven't you noticed that men are made differently from women? Yes, I faltered blankly. Well then, I was silent from sheer inability to follow and she brought out sharply, then for heaven's sake, don't ask me any more silly questions. You can't be as stupid as you pretend the dreadful moment was over, and the only result was that I had been convicted of stupidity for not knowing what I had been expressly forbidden to ask about or even mm. think of. So it's it's a horrifying story, but it's also a story about a whole uh, way of life and upbringing, and of course what Wharton did was not only to break away from that kind of upbringing, but then to write about it, yes. so it became her material.
0: Because don't you feel in a way that had that, that terrible relationship with her mother, that f- particularly the enforced ignorance that Mm. the mother expects is a a wellspring from which several of the plots emerge. Well,
1: the title, The Age of Innocence, uh, is, of course, an ambiguous title because it's partly nostalgic uh, for 50 years before that she's writing the novel in the 1920s, an age that's disappeared of her family's generation. But it's also horrified.
0: And and that novel, in a way, is a a very great piece of cheek because what she's really doing is writing about her own parents' courtship. Um, and and working, showing the seeds planted which will turn her mother into a monster.
1: But don't you think, Um, Patrick, that biographers have to be careful about saying that? that, that, I can say
0: it because I'm a a crude novelist. You're a novelist. (laughs) No,
1: no, but I I think that the idea that, that the things are literally lifted from life and just dumped down in the book it's not how it works, no, is it? It's no, it's no, But I think what you show is that.
0: The, 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 the the as you were saying earlier about Fitzgerald. It's that 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 undercurrent running through the life and the little influences that then become huge sure. influ- influences once the writer has a voice.
1: Yes, a but but also with the, with Watson, it's so fantastic, it's complicated <laughs> because uh, most of her novels are retrospective. Age of Innocence is retrospective over a long period of time. House of Mirth is is barely retrospective, only a, only a couple of years really. Uh, but they tend to that they. Are uh, novels are working as history, mm. um, and that's something that Fitzgerald is very interested in, in too. But what they're doing is both, like an ethnographer or a, a, a sociologist, she's cutting a, she's cutting through with her sharp scalpel uh, through the thick texture of, of the lives and, and times of that she grew up with. But there's also an affection for it. There's also a nostalgia yes. for The Age of Innocence. I think it's very double that.
0: It is, because she describes it as a satire and it does have tremendous sort of anger in it uh, uh, at the fate of the women and the story. And
1: she can be very satirical. Mm. She's very funny. I yes. mean, she's a, I don't know, if I'm sure everyone here has read The House of Mirth and The Age of Innocence, perhaps not The Children or The Mother's Recompense mm. or The Reef, but she, she's a laugh aloud. Well, I urge everyone writer. to read
0: Custom of the Country now because mm. it is the great Trump, Trump era novel, really. It's, yes. a, it's a novel about a woman being famous for being famous.
1: And we, going back to your question about about henry james i mean we uh, everybody knows portrait of a lady i'm sure and the, the the tragic and touching and moving story of isabel's great adventure as an american american girl making her way in in europe with with sort of tragic consequences and undine's the wonderfully named undine sprague who is the sort of becky sharp type heroine of the custom of the country is like that turned upside down. So she's a completely ruthless, shameless, ambitious social climber, and she's going to climb through her looks. She's going to climb through her marriages. And she climbs her way into high French society, which she totally fails to understand. Um, and at the end, she's left discontented. So she's constantly discontented. Mm. Um, but it's a wonderful, savage story. I, I adore I Undine Sprague. She's the no-, no one will make a film of this novel because she's too horrible. I've found yeah. lots I of- I take that
0: as a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think, I think although she, she's horrible, but at the same time, I think Wharton, um, she, Wharton does sympathize with her and that's oh, why yeah. she's not an out and out monster. Mm not least in her complete blankness when she tries to understand her own parents.
1: But don't you think, don't you know, that the mark of a great novelist is to create many, many different kinds of people Mm. and to be able to inhabit them all? So one of Wharton's amazing uh, gifts, I think, is how well she inhabits the male characters in the books, who are often, I think, a bit like her poor father, a bit sort of bewildered and weak and spineless and never can make up their mind about anything. Well, when, May, May's no. poor
0: father in The Age of yeah, Innocence, so, who is uh, almost like Emma Woodhouse's father, he's always a little bit costive and sickly and-, and On needs the to edge goes, of everything. Yes, and needs yes. to go yes. south, and the women have all the power.
1: She's very right. good at hypochondria and mm. all those kinds of things. No, she's wonderful <laughs> at human failing, but she, she you know, she's equally energised by creating the, the outrageous, uh, Undine Sprague as she is by creating Undine's male victims, mm. the people she chews up and leaves, you know, the side of her path.
0: <laughs> <laughs> can we can we step sideways and talk about her as a businesswoman? Because this is the thing I found so fascinating. I, I knew the novels. I didn't know about the rest of her life, about her designing houses mm. and writing books about that and...
1: I would, I would say, and her entre- relationship
0: with her publishers too was sure. quite combative and, oh God, and not half, insistent. Yes. In Another way. letter from Mrs. Wharton. And <laughs> yeah. sort of,
1: um, no, I would say entrepreneur, perhaps rather than she. So there are many, many tools, many gifts. Um, not least uh, designing gardens. She was a great, great gardener. She was a house designer. She had a house built for her in, uh, in New England. Uh, she designed two houses and gardens in, in. Paris and she would in in France and one outside Paris and one in the Riviera and she would have her servants close up one house when it was time to move as one does when it was time (laughs) to move from one house to the other house so she had this tremendously organized life she she loved um, uh, Italian and uh, Italian gardens and Italian villas particularly wrote a very interesting pioneering book about that early on and, and tried to replicate that in the designs of her own houses. So she had all that. Um, plus she was a great traveler, <laughs> enormously interested in art, great friend of Berenson. Um, and also in the war, as, as, as we've mentioned, astonishing uh, energies, opening um, workshops for the, all, the, all the seamstresses who were put out of work uh, in the war. Uh, and making t- um, America
0: aware of the French situation. Yep.
1: Her opening houses for tuberculosis victims, her hostels, um, children refu- mm. children refugees. Um, great worker with refugees, Edith. Um, and trying to get America into the war, trying to influence all her friends who were the kind of gratin of, of New York society and, and doing editing a book called The Book of the Homeless. Astonishing work, admirable work,
0: did you like her? And that's a, that's a very loaded question for a biographer, but did you, by the end of, of the book, did you feel differently about her? How you,
1: felt? you know, yeah. if you're writing a biography of Hitler or Stalin or Donald Trump, um, prob- <laughs> did I say that? Probably, <laughs> probably people aren't going to say, did you like them? Mm. But there has to be, of course, some, some commitment or some absorption.
0: Or because of the years yes. you're gonna My, going to spend going through. I'm a that.
1: literary critic. I, be, you know, I began work as a literary critic and a teacher of literature and right. then I kind of moved into biography. So I, I, I write about people whose work I admire. Right. Um, you don't always find that you admire the person and love the person as much as you admire. I had a difficult time with Willa Cather, who, whose work I think is absolutely marvellous. I think she's a great genius. I found her a very hard rock face to climb. Mm. I felt I was constantly being pushed off this rock. Um, but Edith Wharton, I liked more and more. I, I, I liked her, um, her extraordinary mixture of shyness, neurosis, privacy, intolerance, um, bigotry, uh, uh, kindness, generosity, and energy. I love that mix. I think she's a great
0: person. Well, she emerges from the book like, like one of her own characters, as ambiguous and rounded. Oh, good. So, you know, <laughs> but, but also well, the lovely sense you get reading all your biographies is, is that you may have turned away from being a literary critic, but you still enjoy the moment in each of your books where you get to explain the book and inhabit the book that you're writing about. So you know, the creative process, is you, you, you withhold the temptation to, to, to blur it with the life. It's a, it's, but, it's, it's, I'm very glad you said that because
1: it is, of course, a choice for
0: biography. Mm, uh, and I find it frustrating when a literary biography doesn't do that.
1: But um, there are many people who say oh, I skip the bits about the books. Um, and I say, oh, well, that's fine. If you want to skip the bits about the books, that's fine, because it's there if you want it. And if you don't want to read it, then, you know, just read the story of the life. But for me, there's no point. Right. Um, you know, the point of getting inside these people's lives is to try and understand better and to make people understand better, you know, what, the, what this complicated connection is uh, between, between the life and, and the work uh, and how the personal life does come, of course, mm. is used at every point, but is used in very complicated ways.
0: Which is a very, very tidy segue to Penelope Fitzgerald. Oh goodbye Edith. <laughs> yes, Edith. No, we can we can bring Edith back, but it's Penelope's turn. And this is such a different life. Yeah. And and I think for can we have a rough show of hands of who here already loves the novels of Penelope Fitzgerald?
1: You've got to put your hand up now. Oh, and that, that is a lovely sight. Okay, okay.
0: If you haven't yet discovered her, you are in for a huge treat, a huge treat. But many people read her novels with no idea of what an extraordinary life she had, um, and what an apparently chaotic life. You know, it, it, it's, it's as you said, a very late starter. It's I mean, ver- it's very different.
1: Um, writing a life as as, as I said before writing a life of someone like Virginia Woolf or, or Edith Wharton where what you're doing is you feel the need for some other way of looking at them other than the ways that are already out there I you come to it because you feel the book you really want to read about that person doesn't isn't you haven't found it so you write it This is a totally different thing, and and a huge, a huge stroke of of luck and blessing for me in my life, which was that the uh, the members of the family who who are her literary executors asked me to do it, uh, and uh, because they knew I admired her her work, Um, and so I I leapt at this as as a great stroke of luck. And so you have the responsibility, which is a very different kind of responsibility, of being given materials that no one else has seen, of talking to people that no one else has yet talked to, um, of looking at the archive for the first time, and of and and the responsibility of bringing this story to light, which was known in parts, but not you know hadn't been, as it were fully written. Um, and it is, as you say, a very a very extraordinary, story of, of a person who was a brilliant, brilliant uh, young woman uh, at Oxford, a child of a, of a very brilliant, complicated, eccentric uh, family, the Knoxies. Um I don't know if, how many of you remember Ronald Knox or Dillwyn Knox who worked at Bletchley, cracking the Enigma code. Um, her father was the editor of Punch. Um, very brilliant and dazzling family where success was expected. Um, mm. And then in wartime, uh, I worked for BBC, and then then in wartime made um, a, a, a marriage to uh, a, uh, someone who then went off and had a terrible war, came back very changed. Um, uh, in in some ways, a difficult, um, painful uh, marriage. Um, they fell through the nets of middle-class gentility, as it were. I mean, gentility is the wrong word, but but you know, a certain standard of life. Very suddenly, actually, suddenly there was everything went wrong. There was no money. They went to they brought the children up um, it, first in in, in Southwold in in Suffolk, uh, and then on a leaky barge on the Thames uh, at the turn of the '60s, which sank. Um, and then went into sheltered housing and then lived a very tough life uh, while the children grew up and Penelope taught uh, in order to make ends meet. So all this time, uh, this evident, fantastic promise, uh, uh, clearly this brilliant and imaginative woman was working its way through, as it were, underground, and then began to come out um, uh, with two biographies: a biography of uh, Burne Jones and a biography of her father and uncles and Knox brothers. Wonderful book. Um, when she was around sixty, or just coming up to sixty, and then she had twenty years worth of an amazing career during which time she became well known, and used a lot of this painful and difficult material. And then she became famous at eighty. So this is a hopeful story, <laughs> I think, for, for pretty much everyone in this tent, I would say, looking at you, um, with, a, with a transcendently wonderful novel called The Blue Flower. And I encourage you, if you haven't... Has anybody here not read The Blue? Yeah, I do recommend it. And maybe it's in the, the may not be. Next time you're in a
0: bookshop. Because it, really her, her life her life and work lives out that, that dictum that the beautiful thing about becoming a novelist is from that moment onwards, no bad experience you've had previously is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is mm. wasted. Mm. And she has this very interesting gear change in her career as well mm. where it's as if she makes a conscious decision. Yes, I, have, I have now used enough of my own life. No. I'm going to write historical fiction. And yet what you show very deftly is that the historical fiction is still using... So
1: so, so there life. are novels which you may have read as a novel called, the, a wonderful novel called The Bookshop, uh, which is uh, reflects her time in Southwold. Soon um, to be a an major motion picture. Uh, you know. there's, uh, there's, yes, soon to be a major motion picture with Bill Nye. There's um, there's a novel called Human Voices, which is about her time in working at BBC in the Blitz. There's a novel called At Freddy's about her time. What brilliant novel about child actors? (coughs) Her time teaching uh, uh, child actors at the Italia Conti Conti School. uh, and uh, there's a, a extraordinary novel called Offshore, which won the Booker Prize, which at the time was treated as some some kind of ludicrous mistake. Who is this woman winning the Booker Prize? You know? Well, that's a terrible story. Um, they humiliate yes, her. Yes, they it's do. humiliate her, And that's based on the time in the living living on the Thames. And then she makes a conscious decision, and she uh, and then she starts writing these four late great uh, historical uh, n- novels, uh, Innocence, set in nineteen fifties Italy. Um, Uh, The Gate of Angels, set in Cambridge in 1912. The Beginning of Spring, which is actually my favorite, um, set in Russia uh, just before the revolution. And The Blue Flower, which is set in late 18th century uh, small town Germany, and is the story of the early life of Novalis, the philosopher Novalis. And she says, "There's just what you say. She says, I didn't want to do any more about things that had happened to me. Because I'm sure there are always some things in your life you don't want to write about. Perhaps they're too sad. I think that happens a great deal with novelists. They finally have to leave their own experience. I thought I'd go to a different period, a completely different field, different activities. So it's a very conscious and deliberate Mm -hmm. choice.
0: But I do, this part of me wondered reading that whether what she wasn't doing, because she's quite sly, it has to be said. She is quite sly and sets many challenges to the biographer. Yes,
1: and, and, and I did wonder whether
0: she, it wasn't that she realised, now I can write about the really painful things but I have to encode them yes. in several extra That's layers. That's exactly
1: right, um, I'm sure. And she was, I think devious is not too strong a word. Um, and she was known to lie to some of her interviewers. I mean, I. She I cheated
0: kn- children at card games. She did. <laughs> I mean, her three year old grandson.
1: Yes, I think she cheated her husband at card games when he was dying in hospital. <laughs> um, uh, so there's a, there's a wonderful thing about Russia. Um, so this extraordinary novel about Russia, which, uh, and I've asked lots of sort of Ru- Russian experts, uh, academics, has she got it right? And they all said, yes, yeah, absolutely right. And she used a lot of source material and then she buries it, you know, and she doesn't want to explain too much. She says, I feel this insults the reader to explain too much. So it's laconic and it's compressed and it's quite short relatively if you compare her novels with say Wharton's. Um, and so this Russian novel, The Beginning of Spring, people would say to her, um, you must have spent a long time in Russia. Uh, and it's amazing how well you know Sometimes she would say, yes, yes, I've often been to Russia. And sometimes she would say, and I've seen this actually. And sometimes she would say, no, I've, I've never, never been to Russia. And the truth was she went for a week um, with, with her daughter, uh, Mariah, on a package tour. And there's a wonderful photograph of her, which I've got in the book, with her standing very firmly with her back to the camera, uh, looking at the Kremlin, or whatever it is, with a woolly hat on. I love this picture. So she was evasive in many ways. And she has, I think, many secrets, many of which I didn't find out. And I'm glad I didn't find them out.
0: Mm. Well, that's what, com- that's what comes across, that actually you, know, you, you opened the doors that she probably didn't want opened. But... So I like
1: gaps in biography. I I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say this when you look at this. Um, (laughs) That's a long life, though. Yeah, it's a a big, big life. And I wanted it to be like a piece of ethnography. I wanted it to be a richly furnished series of rooms. With, With Fitzgerald, I wanted it to be more compressed. But I don't think you should pretend. There's a wonderful life of... Virginia Woolf by Quentin Bell, her nephew, which was a great inspiration to me, and I knew Quentin. He was very, very nice to me, and he would say, "I feel you're putting me in my grave." Um, and uh, uh, and it's delicious. It's a delicious read, and it has the batty aunt, and the you know, it's the kind of family version of Virginia Woolf, the eccentric genius who couldn't button up her own cardigan. You know, um, this was not the kind of Virginia Woolf that I wanted to 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 recreate as it were. But it's completely smooth operation, Quentin's life of of Virginia. There's no problems, there are no problems, there are no gaps, there are no mysteries. It's just lovely, it's lovely to read. Um, and I didn't, I don't want to write that kind of biography. I think where there are secrets and things go missing. So you're so much at the mercy of the archive. Mm. You know, if you've been having a secret relationship for the last 10 years and I was writing your biography and the letters and emails and, and whatever had all been hidden away and you'd never told anyone and nor had this other person. How would I know? Yeah. It would be Mr. I might get the sense that something had been going on and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but you know, you're know, you at the mercy of what you can find.
0: And at the mercy of chance as well, I mm. imagine, the things that, that, that come your way. Mm. Mm.
1: After I'd written about Edith Wharton, there was a big discovery of her letters to her governess who stayed with her as a family friend all her life, Anna Balmer. <laughs> lots and lots of letters and they were published. And when that book was sent to me, I cried. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew, I knew there was stuff out there. I'm sure there's more Wharton stuff that so was You can tell me mm. now.
0: Now you've done crying. Did did she have? Was the governess like the mother? She failed to have good. Not quite. Not quite? I, think I
1: don't want to sentimentalise no. any of these no. relationships.
0: No. Or Wharton, you know, Wharton. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just kind of my tutor. You see. <laughs> 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 can we can we can we step sideways yet again though and talk about? Um, both both these writers side by side and and, and what these stories have taught you and Mm. teach us about women who write. Mm. Do you think things have changed so much?
1: Yes. Um, uh, I mean, I'm very interested in in, uh, women writers like Wharton and Fitzgerald and Bowen. Elizabeth Bowen is one of my great heroines and, and, and Willa Cather, who do not define themselves as feminists. Uh, they they're not um, they're not eager to embrace that definition. Wolf is a different matter. She didn't like the word feminist. Uh, which was a relatively new word, actually, mm. in, the, in the in the early twentieth century. Uh, but she certainly was one, and uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. And but the it, manner in uh, which
0: she lived her life and her marriage and so on as well. Yes, so was, and, was... and,
1: and her polemical mm. essay. I mean, mm. she's very polemical mm. writer in man, in many ways. But that's an, that's another subject. These these people don't want to be fully paid up members of a group. Uh, and Wharton was very hostile to, to feminism, uh, very rude about Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury Group, very rude about, you know, shrieking women who get up on, on you know, soapboxes, and she said, I think women are made for procreation and pleasure. <laughs> it's amazing coming from her, isn't it? You know, incredible. Yet, of course, look at the subject of the work. The work is all about women who have been victimised by social expectations, women who are... Um, you know, struggling to get out of constricting Ooh. marriages. And um, the,
0: tra- the transactional nature of marriage yes. as well. I mean, can she's I, have I got time to read a paragraph yes, of yes, that? Yes, uh, to, I'm sorry, of- I feel
1: I'm, uh, I'm taking us back to, if I can find it. This is an example. Okay, this is, a, this is a novelist who does not describe herself as a feminist. This is a short story of 1908 called The Choice about an unhappily married woman who's having a secret affair and this is what she says about her husband. Day by day, hour by hour, I wish him dead. When he goes out, I pray for something to happen. When he comes back, I say to myself, are you here again? When I hear of people being killed in accidents, I think, why wasn't he there? When I read the death notices in the paper, I say, so-and-so was just his age. When I see him taking such care of his health and his diet as he does, you know, except when he gets reckless and begins to drink too much. When I see him exercising and, and, and resting and eating only certain things and weighing himself and feeling his muscles and boasting that he hasn't gained a pound, I think of the men who die from overwork or who throw their lives away for some great object. And I say to myself, what can kill a man who thinks only of himself? And night after night, I keep myself from going to sleep for fear I may dream that he's dead.
0: Um,
1: and it's really
0: devastating. <laughs> yeah, poor. Oh,
1: it's really shocking. It's terrific, isn't it? Mm. Fantastic, I love it. Um, and, you know, this is someone who would have no truck with feminism. Uh, so it's a wonderful, wonderful But did that was a pose? No, no, you I think, think it was I mean, completely did, she genuine. She didn't want
0: what feminist, feminism wanted. Yet
1: she wrote out of her own experience mm. and the experience of many women that she, she knew. So it's, it's personalised and it's historical. It's not polemical. Mm. Uh, with Fitzgerald, I mean, uh, Fitzgerald is not a polemicist. There's a f- th- um, her, her executor and, and son-in-law, uh, Terence, Dooley did a wonderful edition of her letters and I was very amused to find among these letters a report she gives um, of having gone to the Edinburgh Literary Festival. And she says, um, uh, Hermione Lee uh, was very kind, though she clearly thinks I am hopeless about feminism. Uh, She says it is a generation thing. Oh, I don't remember actually saying this to her on a platform, but, there, but it's that curious thing of being the biographer of someone who you you know you've you've interviewed previously. So she didn't, you know, she, she didn't come on. But but if you look at the stories, uh, they are all they are very often about a young woman who's gotta make her own way, mm. who's having a very hard time, who's fallen in love with the wrong person, or someone that that it's not working out. You don't know often till the last sentence of the last page whether it's going to work out um who's having to make their own way who has not a penny uh, except what she's going to earn by her wits and she,
0: she really understands poverty yes yeah, she understands
1: um, poverty very profoundly and she also understands what you need for survival and what you need for survival is a kind of hopeless courage Um, which often doesn't work out. And you need to try and do some work. You need to have something that you can do. Mm. And these books are very interesting about work, I think.
0: Well, and she, of course, was the breadwinner. She was. She we was for a long time. and she. Carried, I was mm. astonished at how long she carried on teaching at Westminster. And teachers. she was a
1: very interesting teacher. Half the time she would write to her daughter and say, oh, God, this is hell, you know, I was just punishing. And it, I mean, was a, it was a burden and onerous. But for her students, and I talked to a lot of her students and and, and met and and even got old essays, marked essays from them. And she put a little drawing of an overall in the margin of someone who said, overall, I think King Lear is a tragedy. <laughs> um, and, and, and she was rather discouraging to the, to the smart, smug girls who thought they knew everything, you know, and she would, be, she would praise the, the shy,er more awkward girls and wouldn't give the beautiful, smart girls a, a, a good mark. And she, they said, she, we think she was much more fond of the characters in the novels that she taught than she was of us. <laughs> um, so she'd say she'd be teaching Milan the floss with tears in her eyes, and she poor poor Maggie. But then if they tried to confide in her, but they Um Excellent. and uh, you would, and and she would heat her lunch up on the radiator of the room. She talked so that the. the um, the classes would have the warming smell of sausage rolls. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a wonderful story, someone told me that she'd given, them, she'd given her, her essay back with a long wiggly red line down the side of each page. And this girl said, um, what does the line mean, Mrs Fitzgerald? And Claudie Fitzgerald said, it means none of it is any good. <laughs> Devastating. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's the, the thing that comes across time and again with her. Is that the whole story to me is like this terrible warning: never ever underestimate older women, because because she she time and again people people get tripped up by her because they mm. mistake her because she does this little act yeah. of being oh the slightly slightly confused the jam making absent-minded granny. Wife, yeah. Can I read a Please little do. story? Please do. Oh, this is a very good cue.
1: So. This is a, this is an interesting story to me because it involves me. I'm sort of off stage in this story. So it's one of those curious things about having known the person you're writing a biography. So in this is now 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago. I invited to York, where I was teaching, um, uh, for a writer's panel. Uh, Penelope Fitzgerald, Julian Barnes, uh, Edmund White, and Helen Dunmore. Um, and it was a dazzling event. Wonderful panel. Um, and uh, Julian Barnes, uh, who's a friend of mine, um, uh, tells this story about traveling back from York with Penelope Fitzgerald. And this is, a, this is an example of, of a kind of, I think a kind of role that she played. Uh, I mean, she was really like this, but also I think this, I think this was a slight sort of thing that she did to present herself in public. At King's Cross, this is from York, at King's Cross, I suggested that we share a... Ca- oh, sorry, I should explain that um, because the universities didn't have much money, I had offered people either a first-class fare and no fee or a fee and a second-class train fare. And Julian had taken... It's just first- like a certain
0: book festival, I can think. <laughs> of
1: so Julian had taken a first-class fare and no fee and, and Nelby Fitzgerald had taken uh, the, um, a fee and a second-class train ticket. At King's Cross I suggested, uh, and and they travelled together, because they got on the same train, he had opted to move into second class, right, in order to be purchased and travel with her. At King's Cross I suggested that we share a cab, since we both lived in the same part of North London. Oh no, she replied, she would take the underground. After all, she had been given this splendid free travel pass by the mayor of London she made it sound like a personal gift (laughs) rather than something every pensioner gets. (laughs) Assuming she must be feeling the day even longer than I did, I pressed again for the taxi option, but she was quietly obstinate and came up with the clinching argument. She had to pick up a pint of milk on the way from the underground station. And if she went home by cab, it would mean having to go out again later. I ploddingly speculated that we could very easily stop the taxi outside the (laughs) shop and have it wait while she bought her milk. I hadn't thought of that, she said, but no, I still hadn't convinced her. She had decided to take the underground and that was that. So I waited beside her on the concourse while she looked for her free pass in the tumult of her carrier bag. (laughs) It must be there, surely, but no, After much dredging, it didn't seem to be findable. I was by this point feeling and perhaps exhibiting a certain impatience. So I marched us to the ticket machine, bought our tickets, and squired her down the escalator to the northern line. As we waited for the train, she turned to me with an expression of gentle concern. Oh dear, she said, I do seem to have involved you in some low forms of transport. (laughs) So this is the kind of story that a biographer jumps on with glee, you know, it's irresistible. Uh, of course, it tells you quite a lot about him too, yes. yeah. uh, but that's another story. Um, but uh, it's, it's so funny and she knows exactly what she's doing. Who is the master yes. in, that, in that little anecdote? She's the master. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, like she's like a little character out of a Chekhov story. Who's gonna yes. M- misleads the men in her Well, life. she
1: misled interviewers. She misled people who had her down. And so she'd say, oh, what do you, they would say, what are you going to spend the Booker Prize money on? And she said, um, oh, I think I might buy a new ironing board. I mean, <laughs> it's a complete, you know, she exactly it, was, what a, she was, it was a screen.
0: Can it was we a talk screen. a bit about that, that Booker Prize? Because mm. that was, I mean, I'm 55. It was the first time I remember the Booker oh, Prize. Right. It was just they were starting oh. to spend a bit more money oh, on
1: advertising and so on. Well they and I all remember
0: th- the shot uh, when she
1: won. They all thought Naipaul was going to win. It was a bend in the river, I think. It was 1979. Mm. And who remember who here remembers Robert Robinson? Is Robert it, yeah. Robinson yeah. with Ask his the comb over <laughs> and his yeah. yeah. So Robert Robinson was doing the book program uh, and it was raining. In so fact, she'd had to be photographed up against a bollard by the River Thames, because of course, the whole story about offshore and the boat singing and so on. So she got to the studio quite wet. Um, and, and then Rob Robinson was in a very bad mood and said, who are these people? It was Faye Weldon, Julian um, Rathbone, uh, Penelope Fitzgerald and Susan Hill. Susan Hill, not there as a shortlisted, but there as a sort of expert. And Susan Hill, I should say in her defense, became a great admirer of of Penelope Fitzgerald um, and a friend. Um, So they go to the studio and Robert Robinson uh, um, says, who are these people? I was expecting the winner. Well, what's going on here? He clearly had never read anything by Penelope Fitzgerald, never heard of her. Um, And the program the book program is just mind-boggling in its condescension and patronage. Um, so there's lots of jokes about, you know, how forgettable some Nobel Prize winners are, and uh, you know, and and who who now remembers X, Y, and Z. And uh, and and he turns to Susan Hill and said, "Do you think they made the wrong choice?" Um, and Susan Hill says, "Yes. Well, I saw. I'm sorry to say that with uh, Penelope Fitzgerald in the studio, but yes, I do. I think they put the wrong book." And so it goes on. It's nobody ever mentions the novel, that it's just won the prize, um, and it's. A she does a brilliant account of it to her friend Francis King, the novelist so we have her version of it Mm. uh, which I was able to line up with the program itself and write an account of it but it's a very interesting example of a quiet middle-aged woman without glamour or you know self-promoting self-promotingness being completely sort of set aside as of no account by what was then the literary establishment. But I bet Penelope Fitzgerald's name will be written in the annals of posterity a lot longer than Robert And <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, What is so interesting as well is watching the way her career and her novels were constantly having to make space for themselves between Beryl Bainbridge, on the one hand, mm. who had this link to Penelope's publisher and so they were they were mm. sort of lumped together occasionally and Barbara Pym yes. who one forgets was also yeah. still at one publishing. point she
1: very grumpily says you've apparently either got to be School of Bainbridge or School of Barbara Pym mm. I don't happen to want to be either no there was a very unfortunate um, uh, uh, first publishing experience with with uh, with uh, Colin Haycroft yeah. uh, at Duckworth, who who was creating with Alice Thomas Ellis, who was um, Anna Haycroft, who was his wife and also a very interesting novelist, a school of sort of noir, short women's novels. And and, and Haycroft was really interested in classics. I mean, he was a classicist who wants, you know, he, he thought novels were, as he put it, the distaff side of the publishing house. Uh, uh, and the classics were what really mattered. Um, and you know she stuck with that for a little while, and then she quite rightly Escaped. went off to a much better a much better operation with but even then and even Lalla. then she posed
0: with Haycraft pretending that oh there must be some almost like a, an error that I've I've rejected you as my publisher and gone somewhere else.
1: Well, there's, there's an mix- uncomfortable
0: exchange. There's between a
1: mixture. Them. We all know people like that, and she's a very strong version of it of someone who appears to be apologetic, self-effacing. As she describes a character in one of her novels, the sort of person that nobody notices when they enter a room, mm-hmm. but in fact that's the person who's watching and seeing everything and noticing everything. And so there is a core of steel, undoubtedly, uh, and an absolutely f- flaming, rigorous, intense intelligence and imaginative power, and a very... Strange mixture of a, you know, a comic writer with a tragic view of life, a person who didn't write explicitly about religion in her novels, but who clearly had very strong feelings that this world is not the only world there is, who actually believes in miracles and poltergeists, um, and uh, who's very interested in the relationship between the mind and the body and believes that the world is divided up between exterminators and exterminatees mm-hmm. so the idea that this is some gentle sweet sub jane austenish sub barbara pimmish sort of comic mild lady novelist forget it this is a this is a fantastically fierce rigorous demanding uh, um, imaginative uh, figure.
0: Oh, she's one of the most disciplined yep. no- novelists of mm. the 20th century. I think. Mm. I mean, the, the but I don't want to put so people tight. off, because no, the no, novels no, it's are also are lovely, funny it, 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 a lovely, of it's A lot of her work's mm. power comes from the fact that it, 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 she's polished it so cleverly mm. that, that it wallops you on the back of the head after it's passed mm. almost. It's, um, we're, we're reaching the point where I want to throw okay. you to the mercy of the audience, but before we do, I, I can't resist asking what you're. I, I happen to know what you're working on now. No, I'm um, <laughs> and I'm so interested that you're. I think doing this amazing thing of, of writing about somebody while they're still yeah. alive, and how does that feel? So I'm
1: so I'm writing a a, a life of Tom Stoppard, um, which is a big departure for me um, he's a man and and he's alive, uh, and uh, um, he's a playwright. So it's a whole new territory for me. And uh, he asked me to do it, um, and. Uh, I mean, I'll just give you one example of what this feels like. So, uh, very uh, generously, uh, he let me uh, sit in on some of the rehearsals for the recent production, the David Laveau production, the 50th anniversary production of Rosencrantz. Um, And uh, it was a fantastic experience uh, to to sit in and watch this being put together. Um, And I... I, I worked out for myself that I think only one of the cast, the guy playing um, Claudius, uh, was al- was alive uh, when the first production of Rosencrantz uh, w- was put on. And there's the author sitting in the room uh, and there is, as it were, Daniel Radcliffe uh, saying to Tom Stoppard, um, I, can't, I can't really get my head around this line. Um, would it be possible to sort of it a bit differently or could we write another bit in there (laughs) so so he was changing he was slightly not a lot you know but he was changing things he put a couple more lines of hamlet in (laughs) at at one point and and he cut a couple of things out and actually the edition is there you know they faber did a new edition for that Mm. for that production so you can see if you compare it with the with the first first edition and he and that's what he Believes in that the the as he often says, the play is an event, not a text, and it keeps on changing. And he is notorious. I mean, Faber tears the hair because the you know the the book they put out uh, as the first edition. O- often by the time the first edition is out, the play will have changed in in rehearsal. So to watch this person um, uh, fifty years on, monitoring yet another production of this play, which yeah. seems. Which seemed at the time so brilliantly, dazzlingly, uh, this extraordinary takeoff from fr- from Hamlet, and so much about about youth, in a way, and now and now seems so much about time and mortality and the passing of time. It it, it seemed to me, especially in the Laveau uh, production, to see him still actively operating. That's a kind of a f- astonishing privilege and also a clue to the kind of book, I suppose, you write about someone who is not gone.
0: But presumably when you're researching young Stoppard, that's more like writing these because you're yeah. having to rely more. but on, also
1: a lot of people uh, are around yeah. and, and, and that has both its benefits and, of course, its, it's challenges. So <laughs> how does it work? I mean, has, has, has Tom
0: Stoppard written you a sort of letter of safe passage that you yeah. can show to his friends and say yeah. this is official? Yeah.
1: Amazing.
0: Yeah. 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 I won't dig any more because Helen Dummel always yeah. said, "Don't ask to see the back garden." Well, it's the, too st- soon, isn't it? You yeah. all know no, that. Yeah. When
1: you're working on something, it's a kind. Of, I'm always astonished by people who will get up on platforms and talk very happily about something they've just started work on. I mean, hats Terrifying. off to them. No, no, it's but I like, can't. Oh, I'm. I. I feel it jinxes it, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm also too scared. You know. Um, so, there well, we, we are.
0: can't wait, and I'm now going to throw you open <laughs> to, to, the, to the mercies <laughs> of the audience. You may want to ask you about Willa Cather and the Rock Face, or so, whatever. <laughs> please put up your hand if you have a question for
1: her. Matilda's on her run. I
0: just wanted to ask
1: you. Yeah? No. Nope. Is the light
0: on on the bottom, Peter?
1: <clears throat>
0: Press once and that not No, no still. Don't, t- don't touch the mic. <laughs> Haven't. <Is> it- <laughs> yeah, it's working. Spoking. Um, I just wanted to ask, when, um, when you start writing, do you finish all the research? Do you have all the facts before you start writing, or do hmm. you...?
1: Good, jolly good question. Um, uh, with this one, it's a bit different. Uh, I try to have done as much of the research as possible, but when you're writing a life story, stuff, stuff comes at you. Uh, and there are two things. That, well, there's a sort of strange force field actually, that arises, and people will be familiar with this if they do this kind of work, that it's like filings coming to, you know, when people know you're doing something or, you know, you've met a number of people and then they say to someone else, oh, she's working on this, and they say, oh, I've got a story. Uh, so, you, so stuff comes at you after you think you've finished um, quite, quite often, or indeed stuff, archive material, comes, at, comes to you. Uh, quite late. I mean, I remember uh, when I was working on Wolf and I used to go and see Quentin and, and Olivia Bell. Uh, Olivia edited, the uh, Olivia's Quentin's wife, and, and she edited the, um, the diaries. Uh, and they were helpful up to a point, but they were also waiting to see what I would notice. Uh, and I remember very well sitting, going and sitting at their kitchen table and saying, I can't find, I was well into it, by but I, ca- I can't find any letters from, from Toby her brother who died young. There are other letters, family letters, but were there never any letters? from? And Olivia looked at me and said, yes, they're in the attic. (laughs) But she had waited for me to notice the gap Mm. before she was gonna tell me where to find them. Uh, So things like that will happen. Um, So there is this odd force field. But the other thing about writing, fiction, essays, whatever it is, And I I do say this to students, whenever you start, it's always going to feel too soon, you know. You always think, what on earth am I doing? I can't possibly start this. I don't know nearly enough. And that's an enemy to, to finishing. You know, you've got to start before you think you can start. So it's a mixed answer, I'm sorry, but it's a very interesting
0: question. <laughs> you, you write with, with great pain of Fitzgerald's abandoning of her L.P. Hartley yes, project. Yes, yes, um, that was Have very you ever similar. had the door slam in your face suddenly from a family saying you can't? I
1: I had an experience once when I thought I might be going to do a piece of work, which mm. then I found someone else was going to be doing. Ah, okay. Uh, so and, um, so and that was, yeah, that was quite painful.
0: quite painful. Mm. Other
1: yeah, and there's this lady just behind you, Matilda. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I have a friend who is trying to write his autobiography, and he said to me, uh, well, I don't want to put in all the wild stuff because my daughter's going to read this, mm. and I don't want He goes on, mm. how can I encourage him to get mm. into the wild side? Well, it's, it's a matter of choice and taste. I mean, lots of people... Have, Edith Wharton's uh, autobiography, A Backward Glance, left out most of her life. You know, it's just <laughs> extraordinary. But lots of people do that. So, me- so autobiographies are a great challenge for the biographer because they are often all memoir, uh, because they are often wildly inaccurate and misleading, um, and tell you just the opposite of what you want to know. So, I think you have to say to your friend, look, you know, be nice to the fourth to the future biographer. You know, be helpful to the future biographer. Play on play on their vanity. You know, tell them that they're gonna have this marvelous biography written in them, but it'll be a far inferior work if they haven't put the wild side in. Okay, that's all I can recommend. Yeah. Oh, hi. Yes, you mentioned Helen Dunmore. Um, mm. So can I ask about her? Because um, um, you clearly knew her. But not not she... at all well. No, no, hardly at all. i had invited her to... to uh, sorry to stop you, but just yeah. to correct the misapprehension. Yeah. I'd invited her to yeah. your a- art of admiration for her work. I only met her two or three times, I didn't really know it all well. I think this last novel of hers, uh, Birdcage Walk, is just a wonderful book. So I can't answer a question about no, her. No, well, that um, wasn't my, well, wasn't the per- I mean, okay. it, it, you, because you brought her up, I have a question, let's say. And her unti- I felt, I was profoundly depressed by her untimely me. Yes, she was supposed to speak here, um, as you probably know. Um, is it, I mean, to me, I, I love her writing equally, her poetry and her novels writing. Do you think you can tell the difference in in novel writers who are, and are there many who are equally balanced in poetry and novel I think it's very unusual, and I think that's one of the things that was so wonderful about her. Actually, I think most um, poets make bad novelists, and most novelists make bad poets. Disgust. Disgust. (laughs) I'm just, I'm waiting for the challenge. You can see my eyes flickering as I try. Yeah, so I don't think Larkin is a particularly good novelist, actually. Um, they often. Sorry. Hardy. Thomas Hardy is a very yeah. good example yes. of a man who can do both yeah. but Hardy went in
0: an odd direction usually it's poetry to prose because they want to make some money
1: well they say um, he went in that direction because his novels were being so censored mm. and he felt more freedom in, in writing poetry um, yes you're going to think of all kinds of examples of exceptions to this rule but it's unusual it's unusual Mm. Lawrence is a good example of someone who can do both yeah. if anybody here can bear me to speak the word D.H. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a question right in the front Thank
1: you. Uh, I read your biography of of Edith Wharton before I'd read any books by Edith oh, Wharton. I hope and, it didn't uh, spoil it. No, it made me read the <laughs> books of Edith Wharton. I was just asking yeah, because I also am aware that she was a, a wonderful garden designer yeah. and wrote a book about yeah. Italian gardens. Do you yeah. know if that's still in publication? Yes, I th- it's certainly in print in, in, the st- in the States. I'm not sure if it's still in print here, but you can get mm. it on Amazon Yes, I found it on gardens. Books. Right, yeah. thank you, so thank you very it's much. A, but it's a very interesting point about Wharton, uh, uh, which is that scenic uh, design architectural sense that she had so strongly in her, in her life. Is applied to the books, I think, and so the, the kind of structural strength and and decoration. You know, you've got a steel structural strength, and you've got fabulous decoration, mm. and and that's what she likes for her gardens, and that's uh, that's I think partly what she does uh, in You're her always novels. Always very
0: aware of the curtains. Yes, in all her books, the cu- curtains yeah. play a big role. Sure. Well, it's one, one thing she hated about it. her upbringing: too mm. many,
1: too many mm. net curtains. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I forgot what the other thing was. I was going to say. Sorry, Sorry. in answer to... In answer. Oh, it was about... Rep- no, it was about reputation. So it's very interesting that you mentioned the garden design book because, it, you know, one of the things about writing uh, about Edith Wharton was that I wanted to bring her books to a British public more. I think she, you know, much... Uh, probably more well-known in, in, in the States. But, and, and I'm sure, as I said before, I think people here have read Age of Innocence, Ethan Frome... House of Mirth but uh, there are, there's a huge output and there are many books that are not nearly so much read. I hugely recommend the, a novel called The Children if you haven't read that.
0: Other questions?
1: Yes, wood Just to Might be the last one. Uh, this is a very sort of ordinary question, but there re- is no such thing as well, an ordinary question. Uh, <laughs> uh, recently, um, I read a report by uh, Michael Holroyd that said when he was writing, he used to wake up and write in bed until about one o'clock in the in the day, mm. and it struck me about the the comfort of of how you get and prepare yourself for writing, mm. do you, how how the physical <laughs> aspect of how you prepare yeah. yourself for writing. It's funny about writing in bed. I, w- I, I, I was thinking about Edith Wharton, who used to, when she had many guests to her house, um, and she and nobody saw her until lunchtime, but they would get little notices with their breakfast trays, telling them what the programme was for that day's activities, <laughs> um, while she was sitting in bed with her peignoir and her dogs and her letters and her breakfast. Tray and writing as it might be, you know, <laughs> Ethan Frome. Um, so I love this concept of writing, writing in bed. And my my when I had when I got a chair at Oxford and you have to give an inaugural lecture, my inaugural lecture was called Reading in Bed, because I was very interested in the whole history of women's secret reading under the bedclothes with a, you know, so I'm fond of horizontal reading. I don't do I don't do horizontal writing because I, I've always until last week had two jobs so i had to combine writing with teaching or running a college or you know so i i tend to have quite a disciplined frame for when i know i can do the the writing and it tends to be i'm not very i'm not very good at writing sort of on the top of a mountain or in the in a in a railway carriage i i i, I like my space for it
0: yep well, Dame Hermione, please keep it up. <laughs> thank you. I'm all I'll looking try. forward to Thomas Norbert. <laughs> you will be able to get copies of both these books signed by Dame Hermione in the book tent. But please thank her now. Thank, you. Thank, thank, thank you. you. thank you. Thank you. you. Thank thank you. you. Thank thank you. you.